In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Have you been doing anything fun lately? I've been recovering from my illness. (laughs) (laughs) which I still don't know what it was. I just know it was chronic and terrible and it seems to be over. So that's good. Um, This week was my first week back at work. You know, just getting back into the swing of things. Nothing too groundbreaking. How about you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think I've done a whole lot that's exciting. I've decided I'm going to paint my office at home. Mm. Um, So I picked out some paint samples and brought them home and kind of like painted little spots on the wall to see what color I liked. And I have chosen my color. And now I just need to like clean the room and prepare it to actually be painted, which (laughs) I'm doing that part very slowly. (laughs) Do you do you want to share the color? (laughs) It is a Sherwin Williams color. This is not. This podcast is not sponsored by Sherwin Williams. Yeah. Although they're welcome to Sherwin Williams, please feel free. Um, the color I have selected is called Panache Pink. It is a very vibrant pink color. Ah, oh, that sounds great. What have you been? It's. I see that you have on our note a lot of recommendations. I do, and I also have one thing I wanted to share from a previous episode. Oh, okay. So I don't remember which one. It was this season, but we were talking about. Angela, oh, Angela Lansbury's nephew is what was in one of our episodes, I remember. So it must have been episode two. Okay. And when we talked about it, I said I thought that Angela Lansbury had her own true true crime connection, but I couldn't remember what it was. Uh Uh-huh. So I looked it up. Okay. Angela Lansbury's son, Anthony, and her daughter, I think Deirdre was her name, in the late 60s, they were both involved in, like, the drug scene, sort of, and as many people were in the late 60s. And Deirdre actually became a follower of Charles Manson and the Manson family. <gasps> Angela Lansbury's daughter was into Charles Manson? Yes. They were both heavily that... into drugs, which which broke um, Deirdre into that scene. Dang. Yes. And okay. this is like the badass that Angela Lansbury is. When she realized that her kids were sort of in deep and she uh-huh. saw like her son was getting more and more addicted to harder things. And Deirdre, when she realized was involved with the Mansons and she did her own like little research on it, she decided she had to get them out of there. And she thought her only way to really sever the tie was to like completely leave the area. So she up and moved mm-hmm. her family from California to Ireland and successfully saved her daughter from the grip of the Manson family. Angela Lansbury lived in Ireland? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know why that's right. It's I say that as though I had have kept careful track of her career and life history <laughs> when really all I know her from is Beauty and the Beast. And Murder She Wrote, right? I never watched Murder oh, She Wrote. It's a classic. It's a classic. God. Yeah. Angela Lansbury single-handedly taking on Charles Manson. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I want somebody to like mock up a like heavyweight champion fight poster of charles manson and angela lansbury please oh my god that would actually be really fun merch (laughs) edit that out (laughs) it totally would i will um i also have something else from a previous episode like a callback to a previous episode okay so friend of the podcast uh ryan my friend from back east he is scary hours on instagram We've talked about him before. He listened to our last episode and your recommendation of the movie Crack. Or not last. I guess it was episode two, actually. And he's really interested in that because part of his music and part of his inspiration. So he has a song called 
bullet fairy that's out. And the song was written about brutality targeted against the BIPOC community and how uh-huh. Reagan revolutionized the way that GOPs approach criminalizing blackness and calling it the war on yes. drugs. Yes. And he even has a clip of Reagan's speech about the war on drugs in the song. So this oh, wow. is like a big like passion of his is this t- topic and a lot of these topics. And yeah. so he's like, oh, I have to watch it. And he watched it with his wife and they like loved it, loved it. They wanted to let me know. It was a really great recommendation. So... Doubling Yay. down on that one, for sure. Good. I'm glad that they enjoyed it. Yeah, and check out his music out there. If, you like, if you're into this sort of rhetoric, if you're into this sort of these topics, he's got a really, really great collection of songs out. Um, you can find them on Spotify. You can find them on Instagram under Scary Hours. Pretty easy to find them. It's hardcore music. When you say hardcore, do you mean like metal? Think in the vein of like punk music. Okay. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, like true punk music that was like about criti- critiquing or criticizing the establishment. Exactly. And yeah. I asked, like, okay. how would you describe your music? Because that is not my world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he said it would best be described as melodic hardcore in the vein that it's hardcore band format with an aggressive vocal styling, but the music is melodic, which I think is pretty accurate. Yeah, that's so awesome. I wanted to plug that. Check that out. Well, thank you, Scary Hours. Yes. Um, I have some recommendations, too. Do you want to... Do you have anything you want to... The only recommendation I have right now is Lil Nas X has a new song. Have you heard it? No. So Lil Nas X has a new song called Montero, uh, parentheses, Call Me By Your Name. Mm-hmm. It, the music video is amazing, but it's also just a fantastic song. I keep playing it over and over and over and over and over. So it's... Um, super, super queer and just a lot of fun. So that's my only recommendation is listen to that song because it's great. Okay, I'm going to check it out. My recommendations. Okay, I have one music recommendation. So Santa Barbara musician, I think you might have, you've met him before, Kenny Nelson. Yeah. Um, he released a song. He's been doing music for a long time, for years, but he released a song, I want to say last week or during this week. It's called Sugarcoat. Have you heard it yet? I haven't, no. Okay, it's on Spotify. I just really want to plug it because in addition to knowing this person and calling this person a friend of mine, I really, really like it. Like, if Kenny was not someone I knew and I heard the song, like, in a mix, I would absolutely put it on my mix. It's really, really good. So highly recommend that. just want to shout that out. But what I'm recommending now is on Stars, and it's called Seduced Inside the Nexium Cult. Okay. It's a four-part limited series, limited docu-series, and it is told through the eyes of India Oxenberg, who has previously been a huge supporter of Nexium and who, you know, would never have said a negative thing about them. Mm-hmm. So it's really, really fascinating. It's really a lot of inside information you didn't know before. You really get to see the horror show of how everything went down. And uh, it's it's gripping. And the fourth episode, the final one, has like such a great bombshell in it. So mm, okay. highly recommend. I'll have to check that out. And this is random. We were watching, have you ever watched Solar Opposites, that cartoon no. on, on Hulu? No. It's cute. Davey was watching it today, so I was watching along, and I just had to call out there were two Law & Order references <laughs> in, like, a few episodes we were watching. <laughs> that's so funny. In one of them, the alien's just wearing a shirt through the whole episode that says Dick Wolf on it. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, they talk about, um, they actually not only talk about Law & Order, but they, like tease about how the stories on law and order are ripped from the headlines so they like literally oh, say funny. our title in it so solar opposites confirmed fans of the podcast <laughs> i you know what that's what i'm taking it as <laughs> great 
<laughs> the only th- new thing I've been watching lately is a new Netflix show called The One. And I don't know if I would recommend it because I've kind of only been half paying attention to it, but I think it might actually be pretty good. Okay. <laughs> and I and the premise seems to me almost like a Black Mirror type episode where the premise of the show is that people, like there's a company that has developed the technology to literally find your perfect match. Oh. Like, a, like your soulmate, basically. I've heard and, of this. And then they're like, and here are all the ways that if something like that existed, it could like super fuck up the world. And so it, that's kind of interesting. It's a it's an interesting twist on that kind of thing. And I love sort of future dystopian what ifs kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's kind of interesting, but I will say I had a hard time following what was going on for a little while because they jump around in time a little bit. And it probably took me till like midway through the second episode before I was like, Oh, it's different times. <laughs> so so the storytelling, I feel like, could be tightened up a little bit, but the premise is kind of interesting so far. Okay. Should we dive in? Should we I'm, start? Should we? I'm ready. Okay, let's do it. All right. So it's me this week doing the episode. We are season two, episode four of Law & Order. The title of the episode is Asylum. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing really groundbreaking about this title nope (laughs) you know we all know what asylums are or what we previously called asylums are yes and i do have one source quote unquote source um even though i watched the episode just because i was unsure about how to talk about a demographic in the episode and i wanted to make sure i was being that's so funny because i have a a little story about that so (laughs) as you know we have a little running bet for you of what's going to happen in predictions. And I wanted to talk to you about this. (laughs) Boy, I am nail Like, I am knocking it out of the park with these guesses so far. Okay, so we we start the episode with two B-cops. So you've got a solid three out of four right there. I know. And I have like 20 episodes to go this season, I feel like. I know. And I wanted to ask you, are you considering this episode having a dog discovery or not? Okay, I literally, I'm not not exaggerating. When I saw the dog sniffing in a pile of trash, I actually screamed. I, I was so excited. Uh, but no, I'm not considering this a dog discovery. Okay. It was so close that as soon as so I saw the dog close. sniffing in the trash, I almost couldn't pay attention to anything else until there was no dog on the screen anymore. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. I was so excited. And then I was like, oh, fuck, this is not a dog discovery after all. You almost had um, evidence picked up by a pen or pencil, but it was like fingertips. So I'm not I sure. needed to, uh, and thank you for saying that because I saw that and I was like, is that a pen or a pencil? But I couldn't tell. Mm-hmm. And I was going to say, you know what? If, if I can't tell, then I'm not going to give myself credit for it. Yeah. He kind of just like, yeah, we'll get there. So we start out the episode as usual with two beat cops and they're heading to a deli in the evening hours and they're having a conversation about piss. <laughs> disgusting (laughs) but i feel like the the favorite thing they like to do with the beat cop openings is to have them like complaining about their spouses or like their their kids or something constant that's it's all they give the beat cops is like one of them complaining about the person that they're dating or married to (laughs) it's like they're trying to humanize them and show you like oh look they have regular lives too but they just look like yes (laughs) nasty (laughs) yeah they always it's like nobody's ever happy with who they're dating nobody none of the beat cops are ever like oh my god my wife is the best person ever (laughs) 
She made the most, like, incredible meal the other day. I'm so grateful for her. I can't wait to get home. No, nothing. So the female officer gets out of the car when they get to the deli. And she... I just need to take a moment to spotlight this character. Because she has this, like, curly 90s Michael Jackson hair under her hat. And she has such a poker face through this whole first sequence. Um, this this was another one of those episodes where there were multiple scenes where the director really thought they were doing something. Yes. Like, they really thought they were shooting a movie. A hundred percent. This was, like, cinematography. They were, yes. like, going over this whole scene, and you see it, like, swap between the point of view of, like, you know, a normal TV show, like, third person or whatever, and then, like, you see through her eyes the rest of what's happening. Yeah, it's really weird. Yeah. And also, I there it was extremely long. Like, the lead up to mm-hmm. the title sequence was really, really long. So I wanted to look up this actress because I thought, <laughs> I'm just curious if she's somebody. Her most recent role was in 2021, and she played Chef Skinner in Ratatouille the Musical. Okay. Did you know there was a musical of Ratatouille? I did not. Okay, so I had to look it up because I was like, I don't remember Disney doing something like this. And I think this is really interesting, and I have to I have to say it. <laughs> so according to Wikipedia, it's an internet meme crowdsourced musical um, based on the 2007 Disney Pixar film Ratatouille. And it began when one TikTok user, Emily Jacobson, created a short comedic song in tribute to the main character of the film. And then users began to remix and add their own videos, um, and it's envisioned now like a full musical. And then they hired like famous people, like Wayne Brady's in it, um, this actress, Titus Burgess is in it. I'm really curious. It came out on January 1st, and it was um, a charity benefit concert, they called it. So wait, can we see it, or is it a stage production? I think we could, so it streamed for 72 hours on January 1st, 2021, and it was, uh, the charity was given to, I think, the Actors Fund or something like that. So I don't know if you could still find it, but I'm definitely going to try. Okay. (laughs) so curious. Uh, I know that's a side note, but I was like, that is too interesting not to mention. If you find it, let's watch it together. Oh, that would be fun. Okay. Okay. Back to the, back to the show. Outside the deli, we have a few different things going on, a few different little scenarios. We see- A lot is happening. A lot. It's a lot. So we have, one scenario is an elderly woman is walking her dog by a pile of boxes and trash- um another has a couple having an argument right outside the window and then we also have what appears to be a sex worker leaning into an the officer's car as the female officers get in the coffee so she leaves the deli with the coffee and there's also a homeless woman on the scene who is asking for change yes so the officer you know kind of like rolls her eyes past all this doesn't see anything you know criminal just suspicious and she gets in the car they kind of leave laughing and yeah they're basically like It's just another Tuesday in New York. New York City, am I right? (laughs) (laughs) So they they leave the scene. We're left with the third-person view again, back to normal. And the argument between the couple is escalating a little bit. Nothing violent, but they're getting loud and more expressive. So Mimi, who will learn to be the name of the female uh, counterpart to Nathan in the couple... She goes inside to cool off, I guess, and get some coffee. Kind of weird, but, you know, they're arguing, and she's like, I'm going to get us coffee, I guess. By <laughs> While she goes inside, her boyfriend Nathan blows off some steam by kicking a box nearby, and we see, like, a little man, a man's head, like, sort of peer out, so we know there's a, a gentleman sleeping in there. And by the time she gets back outside, Nathan is nowhere to be seen, but we do see a guy's legs poking out from the box. When she goes over, it is Nathan, unfortunately. And the same cops are called back to the scene, and we discover he is Uh, 
What happened? Excuse me, Matthew. You have skipped over the most important part of this, which was a description of her screaming. Oh. <laughs> her screaming was so in- I have never heard a human scream like this in my life. It was shrill. She sounded like the dinosaur from Jurassic Park that sprays acid in your face. That was what her scream sounded like. And it went on and on and on. I, I was concerned that the neighbors were going to think somebody was being murdered at my house. Ooh, you know what? We did lower it. We did lower the volume when we were watching it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> It was really intense. Yeah, so she discovers him. He's all bloody. He's kind of like moving, kind of not. We don't know if he's alive, but the same cops, I guess they're still in the area. So they get called back to the scene. Uh, You know, they fight through this like motley crew of characters that we've seen to, you know, to come upon them. And the opening credits begin. So while the opening credits played, I decided to, you know, do a little research and make my own kombucha from scratch. <laughs> so I brewed up some tea. I created like this little chamber in my closet, you know, in the dark. Um, I fermented it and I was able to slap a label on my very first bottle. And it's great. Uh-huh. It's really Are good. you uh, marketing it? Are you selling it? Have you uh, struck a distribution deal? When we launch our Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody gets a free bottle of kombucha. Delish. It's ginger. You're going to love it. Oh. <laughs> and then the sequence ended and we can get back to the show finally great and we've got the same cast of characters that we saw on the street now they're back at the station and nobody agrees in, on what they saw in the most middle school production of a police interview i've ever seen like no they would never interview everybody simultaneously never and so they wouldn't weird. just have them all in one open squad room they're not in like separate rooms being talked to they're just it's literally like you're watching the breakfast club a hundred percent it's so weird so we have each of them saying something a little bit different and the sex worker is of course a man in drag and they're basically dressed like peg bundy at karaoke night it was such a peg bundy wig it was wildly and whoever was in charge of covering that actor's eyebrows needs to be fired from doing makeup. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I looked up the actor. Also, <laughs> also, they had the most pencil-thin 90s eyebrows oh, drawn yes. on that looked like sad McDonald's arches. It was really bad makeup. Everything that this character says is like dripping with sex or some kind of like sex joke or, you know. Yes. Um, but she, you know, didn't see much. She says she saw a greasy guy in overalls. And the the homeless woman they brought in, she's got better things to do. She adds very little to the episode. The elderly woman they bring in, she's clutching her dog, and she's sitting there. She's got, like, a hairnet on in the middle of the night. And she says <laughs> she saw a tall man fleeing in a red parka with a rip in the pocket. Did you look up that actress? I didn't. She is super accomplished, actually. Really? I, like, sort of thought I recognized her, because I thought she was from Charm. <laughs> but, she... <laughs> but she wasn't. But she was like a series regular in like 300 plus episodes oh. of two different TV series. Wow. Go you, Elizabeth Lawrence. I thought she was the actress from Charmed who was making a quilt out of human skin, but it's not the same actress. <laughs> Damn. So ultimately they don't have a lot to go on. They have all these different stories and they decide to go and interview Mimi who had just found out, unfortunately, that Nathan has passed away. He was brought to the hospital and declared DOA. She says that they they don't fight a lot. They were just having a disagreement because he had proposed to her that night and they were both drunk and she was expecting something more romantic. So they were arguing and she says when she went in for coffee, by the time she had gotten back out, he was already in the box. So they're like, all right, not, not much there. So they tracked down the original guy who was in the box. <laughs> 
I say box a lot this episode. <laughs> and it's a homeless man named Christian Lemonhead Tatum. Um, I'm going to pause here just to say what I had looked up because I wasn't sure if talking about someone who's homeless as the homeless man was the proper way to speak about it. Yeah. And so I did a little research real quick and I found an article called The Language Around Homelessness is Finally Changing. I think I read the same article for what for what I was going to say. Oh, wow. I have a little link here, so I'll send it to you. <laughs> okay. But it basically says that the terms, obviously terms like derelict and things are like that are very outdated. Um, right. And vagrant and is also not appropriate. All the ones like vagabond and yeah. things like that are and a no. <laughs> so they basically say the newest thing that we're trying to streamline is getting rid of the term the homeless. Yes. And changing it to just being homeless people, homeless person, person who is homeless, just to sort yes. of like destigmatize these people as not part of our community at large. Right. Like in the same way we wouldn't, like you and I jokingly as queer people often say like the gays, but yes. whenever somebody says like the gays, it's obviously not complimentary. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I thought of it the same way. It's like you wouldn't want to say the homeless to refer to people, but like people experiencing homelessness or the homeless population or mm -hmm. something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm, I've been mindful, but um, of course, if I miss, make any missteps, please feel free to call me out. Okay. Um, probably more on that in your story. But back to Christian Lemonhead Tatum. They really gave him a nickname I'm going to love saying. <laughs> the actor who plays him, I just called him out because he is Matthew Cowles. And I looked him up just to see if I'd seen him in anything else. Because I actually thought he was a pretty decent actor for the most part. He did a good job. I couldn't stand watching him, mm -hmm. but he did a good job yeah. acting. Um, but what one thing about him that I found very interesting is he was Christine Baranski's husband. No kidding. Yeah, and he isn't anymore only because he unfortunately passed away in 2014. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, but up, up until his passing, they were they were married, and we just saw her last season in this I show. I love me some Christine Baranski, uh, she, so. She keeps coming up. She's like our icon. Now, listen, I also just realized we didn't mention the sad, sad news that Jessica Walter <gasps> passed away. Oh, I from... know. Archer and Arrested Development fame. I love, love, love her and so sad that she's gone. Me too. So many of my friends messaged me. I didn't even see it on Google or on the news or anything before. Like four or five of my friends messaged me on Instagram and they were like, oh no. Did, now is... Is it this podcast or our other podcast where I mistakenly said shout out to somebody who had <laughs> passed away? I think it was this one. <laughs> I think it was. And I think it was the host of Love Island <laughs> that I gave out. a shout out to. I can't. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. So this actor, I, in my opinion, I think he gives a really good performance. It's probably, it's, I think it's always really challenging for an actor to have the task of playing someone on film or on camera that is struggling with some sort of mental illness yeah like the, where their reality is clearly very different from everyone else's yeah it's, it's hard to play that convincingly i feel like it, it it can really come off as very hokey if you're not good at it yeah it like one end comes off really hokey and the other end is like completely disrespectful <laughs> yes also also very offensive yeah. his is i don't know i will tell you i have i'm gonna give this episode quite the low rating <laughs> um but yeah, I wasn't while I feel like today it we wouldn't do this episode in this mm -hmm. way. So I don't I don't know. I don't know enough about uh whatever mental illnesses his character was exactly. supposed to have to see to know whether it was 
accurate or super offensive. So exactly. I, that's I that's what I was going to say. There's a few moments where I think he's he swings and uh, and misses. You know, yeah. we don't need to be throwing ourselves on tables, but you know, <laughs> otherwise I thought he did pretty well. Okay, so they go to find him. Um, they can't find him anywhere. They find a shelter where he supposedly stays. And when they get to his room, the door's ajar, but he's not there. And when they go inside, they find a red parka hanging right up there in plain sight. And Logan reaches in the pocket, and he finds an engagement ring. And this is a tip-off, because when they went to go see Mimi, um, they asked her, like, well, where's the ring now if he's supposed to propose? And she's like, hell if I know. He arrives back to his room as the detectives are in there, and they arrest him as he sings a nursery rhyme. And so this is where we learn that he has some sort of mental illness, and they're trying to portray that right away. Yeah. Back at the station, they have him in a lineup, and none of the three witnesses are able to ID him as to who they saw at the scene. But the elderly woman says that Lemonhead was also there. He just wasn't the one in the red parka that she saw. Mm-hmm. So Logan and Toretta, in this moment, they look at each other and they act like the fact that two different descriptions of people ended up being two different suspects was the most groundbreaking <laughs> news they've ever... They're like, oh, they were two like, people. two people! So thank you, Mother Goose, for cracking the case for them. <laughs> So next scene has Logan trying to extract a confession out of Lemonhead when his attorney shows up and responds with, extract this, Logan. (laughs) I thought she's like a sassy version of Clippy from Microsoft Word. (laughs) Oh my God. Remember Clippy? So Lemonhead says in this interrogation that he didn't stab anyone. He was just safeguarding the jacket. It's not even his. It's from his friend James. And the way he says all of this, we're not really entirely sure if James is real or not. We're not sure if we're on some kind of strange tangent because he's also saying all the stuff about the CIA tracking him. Yeah. So they have their clinical psychologist, Dr. Olivet, speak with him. And we've seen her once before, um, but just calling her out because she's going to be throughout the entire series. She outlasts most of the detectives. And she says he's delusional. Um, and she also says he's psychotic, but not psychopathic. The one lucid detail she's able to get from him is that James Pilevsky, uh, who he says is his friend, is a real person and that she knows where he stays in Central Park. So Lemonhead takes them out there, takes the detectives out to this clearing by the tree where there's these discarded items and trash kind of thrown about. And this is another moment where his acting is very questionable. He's, like, <laughs> walking along and speaking like he's, like, a mix between, like, C-3PO and Rain Man. It doesn't this make was any like sense. A, this was, like, one of those scenes in a movie where they're, like, set him free and we'll follow him and see where it leads us kind of thing. Because <laughs> yes. they just, like, set him loose in the park and then just kind of, like, walk ten feet behind him. It's really strange. Really strange. Uh, they get there. He's not there. So there's no James. But they find an ID with his name on it. And they also find a knife. And this is where he, uh, Soretta picks it up with his fingertips. And they bring it back to the station and run it. And it is a match for the crime, and the only set of prints on it are Pilevsky's. Why, why are they never, ever wearing gloves? I mean, they're going to a crime scene. <laughs> they, they are like, they're going to where a suspect might be. I was just Googling, when did police start wearing rubber gloves? And the first article that came up was like 1924. <laughs> so they should have known about this by the 90s. Have some handy. Yeah. Throw them in the car. So they have the the weapon, they have everything they need on the weapon to indicate that Pilevsky is guilty. So they go and find him and they arrest him. 
Pilevsky's sole purpose, this actress' sole purpose in the episode, <gasps> is just to look in- as menacing and angry as possible. And just... I'm so glad you said that. It's like I he had a few lines which I'd forgotten by the time they show him mostly because all they do is like cut to his face closer and closer and closer, oh, closer and closer every time, and they just <laughs> zoom in on his. Like, Scowl. I think they just were meant to be like, this is a menace to society. Bad was, guy. It was like zooming in on Pennywise's face. <laughs> it was frightening. Right. And they did it like 25 times. So bizarre. So we got we got a bad guy on our hands here. And now we flip over to the order side of the case. And Stone is meeting with the defense attorney for Pilevsky, whose head is sort of shaped like a blob of wax inside of a lava lamp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that, but that's incredible. Davy described it as an hourglass, and I wouldn't I wouldn't <sighs> completely disagree. <laughs> uh, Stone will not offer a deal, and so, you know, they go to arraignment, as usual. And the judge holds Pilevsky without bail, but for Lemonhead, his defense attorney notices that there is no search warrant. She motions to suppress the evidence of the ring. The judge grants that suppression, and so they really don't have anything on him. Nope. They agree to take a plea deal for Lemonhead, and in exchange, he'll testify against Pilevsky. But then, right before trial, he sort of has a panic attack in the bathroom, and Stone has to, like, get him together in his own way, which is not how you handle someone who has a mental illness or how someone's having a panic attack. But, you know, this is 1990-whatever. Yeah. I have a really important question. Yeah. Do you like Lemonheads the candy? Okay, I hated them as a kid, but I've tried them in sometime in the last... 10 years, and I, I actually like them. I started imagining Lemonheads, and then I started imagining Warheads. Ooh, Do you remember Warheads? My dad and, like, was obsessed with buying Warheads for us growing up. That, like, that tangy pain that you get behind mm. your ears, like, is so intense right now. Oh, <laughs> Just my, thinking I, about those candy. I feel it at the back of my jaw, like, behind yes. my back molars. <laughs> I feel it. Literally, you just brought back such a memory for me. My dad, when we were kids, me and my brother, when it was just me, just the three of us, there were certain staples that were like always in our house growing up. Do you have those things like certain foods and beverages that were always around? Yeah. He would buy the largest plastic tub of Warheads. How funny. (laughs) And they were always around. And it was like, it was something I would never overeat like every other candy just because it hurts so bad. (laughs) Yeah, it hurts and it like rips apart your mouth and it takes a long time (sighs) to like power through it those were the best i once bought a costco box of sour skittles (laughs) (laughs) and just ripped apart the inside of my mouth eating them because they're kind of like uh uh coarse no the thing that i we always had at my house was baloney (laughs) just thinking about baloney the other day i was and i for some reason thought i was going to be talking about it on the podcast for some reason but oh that's baloney that is so okay what is what's lemonhead doing He's, he's having the panic attack. He's scared. Stone gets him together as best as he could. And in the next scene, he's on the stand and he does testify in moments of lucidity that Pilevsky did kill Nathan. And when Stone tries to enter the ring into evidence, the defense objects. And Stone says, no, this was inadmissible in the case against Lemonhead, which is off the table now. It's not inadmissible here. But the judge really quickly comes to the conclusion to side with the defense and Stone is pissed. <laughs> pissed. <laughs> so on cross-examination, now that the ring is out, the defense just asks Lemonhead questions about his connections to the CIA. And he basically discredits himself by telling this ridiculous story. Yeah. 
when Elsie Hatch, who's the older woman from earlier, who's the one with the dog, she's oh, on, yeah. she's on the stand. Um, they show the defense challenging her eyesight, and he's clearly trying to do this. That's clear that the tactic is to discredit all the witnesses. Wasn't that a thing in My Cousin Vinny, where he's like, how many fingers am I holding oh, up? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you think that movie holds up? We should watch that. We should. I've been telling Davey, so you know me and Davey have that jar of movies? Oh, yeah. It's in the jar, my cousin Vinny. And our rule for quarantine for jar stuff, because we have to take care of ourselves and a lot of the stuff in the jar is like horror. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So our rule is we can pick three movies from the jar and select from those three movies when we select, just in case there's a tone that we just can't handle. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. I like that. That's so fun. It's really fun. It's been really fun. I highly recommend it as an activity. But we we drew My Cousin Vinny as one of the options the other day. And we went with, uh, it was posed as sort of like an updated clue with like a Ryan Murphy vibes with it with Jamie Lee Curtis. Knives Out? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, that was good. Yeah, we liked it. Did you not see that? No, we hadn't seen it. I've always wanted to. And yeah, I really liked it. It was no clue, but it was It was no clue, and it wasn't as Ryan Murphy-ish as I thought it was going to be. Wait, did Ryan Murphy make that? No, but the vibe I got from the previews when it was out was like this very like tongue-in-cheek sort of not taking itself too seriously, bombastic characters, but it ends up being way better than I thought. I, if, hey, listeners... If you would like to see Matt and I on, like, Patreon uh, do one of those videos on, like, YouTube where people react to the thing that they're watching <laughs> with movies, we'll do that with, like, My Cousin Vinny or things like that. Oh, so totally. If that's something you want, send us an email and let us know. Yeah, give us some ideas of things we could <laughs> we could do it to if, you, if you're interested. <laughs> and just to say again, we are in the process of developing and putting our Patreon up, so it will be coming soon if you would like to support us. Yes, we have a lot of, like, concrete things happening it's very exciting yes 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 okay so when he's crossing examining elsie he challenges her eyesight and she says she's got perfect eyesight except for reading and he's like okay well then take a look at the mural on the wall behind me and she passes the test she knows what it is and when he's like how did you know she's like i was able to read the words on the wall and she goes (laughs) i hope your eyesight is better than your manners young man (laughs) burn (laughs) (laughs) it's good though because he kind of just stands there dumbfounded and walks away that's like i again i spend a lot of time listening to sinisterhood and shout out to sinisterhood they're one of my favorite podcasts out there and i just remember heather on that she's the lawyer and she's like a lawyer should never ask a question that they don't already know the answer Mm. to because then things like that happen hello yeah so soretta testifies next and he talks about the knife the judge comes to the conclusion that the defendant is guilty, and he sentences him to 25 to life. And I was like, that was a really quick wrap-up, but (laughs) no. So six weeks later, we fast-forward, and they appeal based on the Fourth Amendment, and they say that they didn't have a warrant when they searched the defendant's non-traditional place of residence, talking about the park. So Stone and a new attorney for the defense, they present their cases to the appellate court, which I foolishly called the appellate court in a previous episode. (laughs) I think I meant to correct you, and I don't know that I did. I don't think you did. It was after when I was editing, I was like, appellate? What is this, orchards? (laughs) But it's a pretty cool scene because they have those little cool things that I love with the red, yellow, and, and green lights that time you. When you're talking. Oh, yeah. And it like buzzed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought yeah. that was a really cool scene. And I thought to myself, I would be <laughs> very challenged <laughs> oh, God. by one of those. 
Did you ever do debate club or did, I don't my school didn't have a debate club, I don't think. But did you ever do that or I, express any interest in it? I took a speech class, like a speech writing class in college. And hmm. the guy who ran it was like the head of the debate team. And okay. he asked me to do it. But it was a time of my life when I was like, getting involved in something i'd rather die <laughs> hard pass <laughs> yeah. uh, i think i'd be good at debate though i mean you do love to argue i'm argumentative <laughs> as i will say my still one of my favorite matt quotes oh, here we go. is i'm not arguing you're arguing with me <laughs> The uh, the appellate court goes over everything, and they side with the defense. So Stone loses, and the knife is not admitted into evidence. The only chance now that they have is to get the ring back into evidence, and to get Lemonhead to take the stand again. But when they find him, Lemonhead is in a straitjacket at Bellevue, and he's on antipsychotics and cannot stand trial. Mm-hmm. So Stone starts developing a backup plan. In the judges' chambers, he brings his A-game, and he's got all of his receipts. He's got his, like, book of receipts there. He's ready for the reunion special. (laughs) (laughs) Very Monique. Mm -hmm. And he not only gets the judge to admit that he was wrong, and that now he likes it, so he's going to put a ring on it. And by that, I mean the ring is admissible. He also... I hate hate you. (laughs) He also gets him to allow Lemonhead's previous testimony to be admitted since he's um, unable to stand trial, since he's incapacitated. Yeah. Which is a dual win for him because it not only gets the lucid testimony that they can't depend on him to provide again, but it mm-hmm. also prohibits cross-examination. Mm, yeah, so it's like super advantage to the prosecution. Exactly. And the defense knows this is bad for them, so they take a little walk outside and they agree to a plea deal of manslaughter one with Stone's favorite, favorite stipulation, which is that the defendant does the max. Mm-hmm. And that's 25 in this case. So they agree to this. And the attorney says that his client won't be happy. But Stone ends the episode with a quote, well, there's Lemonhead, rubber cell at Bellevue, and Nathan Robbins, he's got six feet of dirt over his head. So what's Happy got to do with it? And that's the end of the episode. Stone. Always with his zingers, I swear to God. I think they're getting better, even. They're not bad. I mean, they've never been horrendous, mm-hmm. but there's, it's very, like, I f- you know, in, in literature, there's, like, the concept of, like, the Mary Sue, where or, like, yeah, I think it's Mary Sue, where basically the author, like, writes themselves into, the narr- into the story as this, like, basically perfect all-knowing, super powerful character. I feel like that sometimes with Stone, where it's like, they don't show enough of him fucking up. Like, he's he always knows everything, and he's always right, and blah, blah, blah. Well, I feel he's like not a- the only flaw they're, they're building into him, which is, like, totally like a cop-out flaw. It's like an interview question. <laughs> cop-out, yes. like, he's Where you too... turn a weakness into a strength. Exactly. <laughs> like, he's too, um, he's too laser-focused on something when he gets it. Uh, like, there was yeah. that mob episode where he got too focused on the big fish and, like, kept losing case, like, case after case that's in the middle. That's true. Like, I think yeah. that's his only... Th- his virtue and his, is, like, steadfastness is his weakness. Is his downfall. Mm. Yeah. Well, are you ready to hear about the true crime that inspired this episode? I'm beyond ready because I'm wondering, like, my main guess was that it was going to be about the homeless community. Okay. Davy's guess is that it's going to have to do more with the the search warrant situation. The Fourth Amendment. Yeah. Well, so one one little disclaimer before I start telling you everything about this is that there is an incident that happens, and I did a ton of research for this case, but... 
um, what is really lacking out there are the stories of the people involved prior to this incident. Like, it literally, there's almost nothing about their lives prior to these things happening. Mm. So um, I'm saying that because I didn't intentionally leave that out or do a, a lazy job. I really, really looked hard to find more information about everybody. But it's sort of like everything began with sort of this crime okay. kind of thing. So. So, listeners, we Matt and I are going to start a new thing where instead of listing all of our sources on the episode, because it, it for this episode, I have upwards of 30 or 40 sources, and so uh, I don't want to sit here and list all of them for you. So we're going to start putting those on the website, so if anybody wants to check any of the sources or we mention one that we think is really good and you want to go read it, we're going to put those all up on our website so that we don't have to bore you by listening to uh, to a million rec- uh, sources <laughs> in the episode. Yeah, we realize that sources and the research and citation is very important. Um, we always want to give credit where it's due and to let you know that the information that we're telling you is from someplace. We didn't just yes. come up with it, but we also don't want to like give you the the credits to the movie in the middle of the in the middle of the movie. <laughs> Exactly. Yes, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah, so I think, like you said, if there's one that I really think people should read, I might mention it at the beginning of the episode, but just assume there's more research and just check our website. Yes, perfect. Okay, this is the story of David Mooney. And like I said, there's a lot of information missing about the people's lives prior to the incidents that I'm about to tell you about. So unfortunately, I can't give you what I like to do of a little bit of like, this is what this person's life was like. And this is when they were born and where and kind of their their childhood and things like that. So can't really do that in this case. But like Matt said, this is this is a story involving homelessness. And mm-hmm. Matt said, and I think the exact same article that I referenced, uh, I'm going to try my best to uh, use the phrase kind of people experiencing homelessness or, um, you know, the homeless community and not, of course, the homeless. Okay. Okay. So I wanted to start actually with just some statistics on homelessness um, that I think a lot of people maybe aren't aware of. So currently, about 10.5% of the US population lives at or below the poverty line, um, which is kind of the the category of folks who are most at risk of experiencing homelessness, but we we are all a lot closer to being homeless than we are being rich. Uh, I which feel that. I feel a that. Lot of, <laughs> a lot of people don't realize that and don't want to accept that. 70% of the people experiencing homelessness are individuals. 30% are people with children. Um, 60% of the homeless population are men, and while white people make up the the largest quantity of homeless individuals, um, Pacific Islanders and Native Americans are the populations that have the highest rates of homelessness, uh, closely followed by Black Americans and Latinx Americans. Yeah. Those who are chronically homeless are m- more likely to have a disability or are a military veteran. And it's most likely, homelessness is most likely to occur in states and territories with high costs of living. So New York and DC actually have the highest rates of homelessness in this, uh, the United States. Hmm. Between 20 and 40% of homeless youth are teenagers who are queer or trans and either flee their homes or are thrown out of their homes by their family members because of their gender or sexual identity. And if you want to read about the like rise of homelessness in the United States, because it has 
it had a really dramatic increase for a number of years. And thankfully, in recent years, actually, it's been decreasing a little bit. Um, but some really large contributors to homelessness, the growth of homelessness, are the deinstitutionalization de of mental health facilities, where the government cut funding for state-run um, mental health facilities and kind of like made that the responsibility of local communities without giving them the funding to support that. Mm -hmm. And most like community mental health centers have to compete for funding with food banks, economic development project, and housing projects. So this this article that I read about the funding available to community-based mental health facilities was talking about how they usually lose out because people are more likely to want to give money to housing programs, food banks, and and economic development project than mental health facilities. Mm -hmm. The rise in the cost of living, uh, unemployment rates, lack of care for folks with mental illnesses, and drug addictions are also big contributors to homelessness, and uh, the lack of uh, civilian reintegration programs for veterans. Hmm. I was so just watching something the other day um, on YouTube, totally random, but there's a channel called Vsauce. Uh, Have you ever heard of it? No. It's like the letter V in the word sauce. He's a really smart guy. I don't know what his background is, but it's always like topics like when will we run out of usernames or, oh, you know, is ooh. red the same color red to every person? And he goes over no. like a ton of different information. <laughs> he goes into a ton of different information in each episode. It's all really interesting. It's very nerdy and dorky and fun and great. Oh, um, nice. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. The reason I bring it up is because there was an episode I watched literally the other day and it was called How Do People Disappear? Mm, yeah. And he talks about it a little bit. He talks about a lot of different ways, but, you know, a very common way that people just disappear. Like, you wonder that. Like, how do people just go missing Yeah, and when they're not abducted? You know, how does someone right, just right, right. disappear? And it's interesting to see how many people disappear through, you know, going to, like, a facility or something like that that right. ends up getting shut down. And then where do these people go when they don't have family members that are willing to take them in? Because, unfortunately... A lot of people who drop their family members off, not all, but a lot of people who drop them off at facilities, they, they're they essentially a permanent drop-off. Right. And then, like the Kennedys. Yeah. <laughs> and then they, As we talked about. And then they don't get, um, where are they going to go then? Did we talk about Rosemary Kennedy and how the Kennedys just like dropped off some of their family members at mental institutions no. and like never picked them up? I think they talk about it on Sinister. I was going to say, you probably heard it in the Sinisterhood episode. <laughs> So this is the story, as I mentioned, of David Mooney, whose history I was not able to get much information on. But he was working as a carpenter and had recently lost his job and was not getting along with his roommate. And so he moved underneath an overpass on Interstate 91 in New Haven, Connecticut. And one of the articles that I read talked about how the the space that he was living in under this overpass was really inaccessible to to folks like it was hard to get to and it was really private he uh kind of like would routinely leave his all of his belongings there like his walkman and his cassettes and um he kept a coin collection and he like had a area where there was running water that he went and showered so it really he did describe it as like his home area mm -hmm. so mooney it appears had a either a substance abuse issue or was a very active <laughs> i don't know he had a a habit of using drugs okay. not sure what kind but he obtained some of his drugs or all of his drugs from an associate named mark allen and at the time of the this story david mooney owed him over thirty two hundred dollars for the drugs he had gotten from him Oof. 
which in today's money is about $7,400 today. And I looked, Ugh. when I was researching this, I looked at Miles and I said, could you imagine owing somebody almost $10,000 for drugs? Oh my God. <laughs> I can't imagine owing someone $10,000 for anything. A period. Period. Oh my God. Okay. So on July 30th, 1987, David Mooney decided how he was going to pay back Mark Allen for the money that he owed him for these drugs. So he took Mark Allen to the condo of a man named Theodore Genovese, who Mooney claimed later to police officers that he and uh, Theodore had a, in these articles, which were written in the 90s, they kept on referring to people like as a homosexual or a homosexual relationship. Um, so if you hear me say that word, it's probably because I'm reading a direct quote from one of these okay. articles. So supposedly, Mooney told police that he and Theodore had an ongoing sexual relationship Wait, of some sort. I'm sorry, who's is Theodore who is getting the drugs from? Mark Allen is, is his dealer. And he, so David is like, okay, Mark, I owe you seventy or uh, $3,200. Here's how we're going to get it. We're going to go to this guy named Theodore's house. Oh, okay. And what the premise of this supposedly was that um, you know, we're going to sort of be like, we're going to have a, a threesome. And Theodore is like, cool, come on over. So Theodore is a 58-year-old supervisor over a radiology department at Yale New Haven Hospital. And at the time, he was divorced with five children. And the plan was David Mooney and Mark Allen were going to get into Theodore's house under the pretense of some sort of sexual activity and that they would steal some of his property that then Allen would take to kind of pay as payment for the debt that Mooney had with him. Mm, okay. So supposedly, according to Allen, whose testimony, kind of like Lemonhead in the episode, um, not not due to any sort of like mental illness, but he's kind of caught lying a couple of times in different ways. But he says that Mooney and Genovese and he had drinks in preparation for, quote, a sex thing. It was supposed to be like a threesome. <laughs> Mooney and Genovese took a shower together and engaged in some sexual activity. And then Mooney just apparently, according to Alan, abruptly began beating up Genovese while they were like in bed together. Oh God, okay. So Alan stated one minute they was cuddling and the next minute Mooney just turned around and hit him. Alan claims that he pulled Mooney off of Genovese, but uh, Genovese had lost consciousness due to the beating at this point, and Alan leaves the room to begin looking through his condo for items to steal. And it was at this time that Mooney supposedly killed Genovese by strangling him with a nearby electrical cord. Yikes. Alan fled the condo, taking Genovese's coin collection, a VCR, and he also stole Genovese's car as well. Genovese's nude and beaten body was discovered the next day on the floor of his bedroom. Mark Allen doesn't appear to be the brightest crayon in the box because he was arrested about a week later driving Genovese's car. Oh my god. So I feel, I mean, like, not that I'm telling people how to commit crimes, but I feel like that's maybe a giant waving flag to the police yeah. when you're driving the car of a person who's been murdered. I mean, you might as well move into his house. A hundred percent. Right. Okay. So he admitted to police that he had been there to rob Genovese, but claimed to have no involvement in the assault or the murder. And he said that, uh, you know, Mooney is the person who did all of this. So the police 
take his testimony, determine it to be accurate, and they obtain an arrest warrant and go and arrest Mooney. While Mooney is in custody, the police met with Mooney's girlfriend at the time, Linda Spencer. Um, that What I just told you is the extent of information about Linda Spencer. <laughs> She's just <laughs> this girlfriend of Mooney's. They asked her to take them to where Mooney had been living. And so she took them to the uh, area of the underpass, and the land is technically owned by the Connecticut Department of Transportation, but as I said, the area that Mooney was living in was not visible or accessible from the highway. You had to cross through heavy underbrush and go down a steep embankment with cr- covered in crushed stone in order to get to it. So it really was a pretty secluded place that he was living in. Yeah, it's not something you're just going to happen upon. Exactly. So... Inside of a cardboard box at, and I'm just, for the sake of not having to repeat a lot of complicated phrases, I'm just going to refer to this space as David Mooney's home mm-hmm. because that's how he refers to it. And that's actually part of the the big debate in this case. So inside of a cardboard box at the space of David Mooney's home, the police found a belt that was the waist size of the victim that they had killed or that David Mooney had allegedly killed. And inside of a duffel bag, they found a pair of pants that were covered in blood Uh, which uh, Mark Allen later identified as the pants that Mooney had been wearing the day of the murder. And they also found $700 worth of coins in in this duffel bag as well. Uh, Remember coin collections? That was like a big thing people did. It was a big thing. I'm sure there are still a lot of coin collectors out there. Oh, sure. I guess so. uh, Yeah, I feel like it was one of those big, big things 20, 30 years ago. It's one of those commercials that was always on late at night. They were selling knives or coins. <laughs> oh, God. So many knife and coin commercials. You're right. <laughs> God. So Mooney was charged and tried for felony murder and robbery in the first degree. At trial, Assistant State Attorney Roland Fasano characterized Mooney as, quote, a homosexual hustler and vagrant and claimed that Mooney had had a longstanding relationship with Genovese. Again, I, I was not able to find much of anything to substantiate that claim, or the sort of, like, homosexual hustler claim. Although, well, I guess actually I do have a little bit about that, okay. so we'll get into it. So Mooney was appointed a uh, public defender because he did not have the funds to uh, hire a lawyer, and it, but by all accounts, his public defender was doing a damn good job, actually. And as as we've said before, Public defenders are often really great lawyers that are just often overburdened with the caseloads that they have. So his defense attorney tried to undermine the state's evidence by showing that uh, Allen, who was the one who said, oh, Mooney did it, Mooney killed him, Mooney has has this property, blah, blah, blah. Allen had been caught in several lies by police during his interrogation and at other points during this. And so the defense used that to try to undermine his testimony to say like, hey, he's been caught lying multiple times and he's the one who supposedly told the police that Mooney did this. There was also no evidence of sexual activity between Mooney and Genovese, and several witnesses um, that the defense produced said that Mooney was in Manchester at the time of the slaying. But State Attorney Fasano conceded that, sure, Allen's, you know, apparent perjury, his lies, are hurting our case, but said that his version of events were supported by evidence. And he was quoted at trial as saying, you don't have to like Mark Allen. Nobody likes him. You know he's a drug dealer. You know he's been convicted of other crimes. But the man was there. He was an eyewitness. He knows what happened. And the one thing he has said with absolute consistency is that David Mooney was involved. So that's how the prosecution kind of tried to spin Mark Allen's testimony and encourage the jury to ignore his multiple instances of perjury and lying Mm -hmm. to police. 
During the trial, Mooney's defense lawyer also filed a motion to suppress some of the evidence that had been obtained during the police search of his home. And his case was one of the first to, it's kind of a landmark case in the question of whether the Fourth Amendment protections of reasonable expectation of privacy applies to homeless individuals and their quote-unquote makeshift homes. Okay. Essentially, the defense was arguing kind of two two separate questions in this case, like, quote-unquote, what constitutes a home and how much privacy can a homeless person expect? And Mooney said during the trial to an interview with a newspaper, I didn't feel homeless. I felt at home. I felt more at home than when I had an apartment. So uh, his lawyer, Emmanuel Margolis, argued that the warrantless search of Mooney's makeshift home violated the Fourth Amendment, which protects the rights of individuals to, quote, be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. So one of the articles I read in the Ohio State Law Journal made this really interesting argument that the way that the Fourth Amendment was written is kind of tied up with archaic notions of citizenship, mm-hmm. because in the 18th century American colonies, in order to vote in elections and receive other rights of citizenship, you had to be a property owner. Mm-hmm. And so this person is pointing out that the the fact that the law was written to only really apply to folks who were considered like property owners and full citizens, the way that that is written and applied creates inequities in the population because people who don't have a house don't have the same rights to privacy. I mean, that's fair. Yeah. So... In the uh, one of the quotes from the Ohio State Law Journal said, with the increasing number and growing awareness of the homeless in the United States, the injustice of this property-based interpretation of the Fourth Amendment is becoming clear. Mm-hmm. So Mooney argued that because he had exclusive possession of the area during the time he lived there, nobody else was using it. It was hard to get to. People couldn't see it or stumble across it. He was no less entitled to the privacy and protections of the Fourth Amendment than quote more fortunate members of society who happened to dwell in houses. The prosecution countered that because the area falls under the open fields doctrine, Mooney was in effect a trespasser on state land, and that property was accessible to anyone who happened along. Okay. In the Duke Law Journal article that I read, Mooney's defense, quote, relied on three factors in holding that the defendant had a reasonable expectation of privacy. One, the search involved the interior of luggage to which society traditionally affords a great expectation of privacy. So, right, they like went and opened his suitcase, Mm. his duffel bag, which they're saying most people expect that their bags aren't just going to be like opened by random people. Right, of course. Um, Two, the police knew that the defendant regarded the area as his home, uh, which is true because his girlfriend led them to the area and said, this is where he lives. This is his home. And three, the search occurred while the defendant was under arrest for the purpose of obtaining evidence. And so therefore, one of the uh, things that the prosecution argued was that any property that is left out in any kind of public space is considered abandoned. And so then it is allowed to be uh searched without a warrant Mm. and so they're saying he was under arrest at the time so he couldn't be there with his property so that kind of excuses that uh justification mooney was convicted in march of 1989 for felony murder and robbery so his his attempts to have the evidence quashed in the trial were unsuccessful And in the Supreme Court opinion on the case, there was other evidence admitted that indicated that this might have been a pattern of Moody's because they the prosecution was able to find another man who they called in the 
state Supreme Court opinion that I wrote or wrote. <laughs> I didn't write it like a bike. <laughs> they literally just refer to this, both Theodore Genovese and this other person as a male homosexual. They like just don't even name them, which I find very dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. They found another person that supposedly uh, David Mooney had kind of like picked up uh, to have sex with and he took Mooney back to his apartment and Mooney stole a bunch of his property. And the Supreme Court decision literally says that Mooney stole uh, six to $800 in change, which who has wow. that much change That's heavy. around their house? That's heavy. Even if it's all quarters. <laughs> Even if it was dollar bills, who has $800 lying around? He also stole a bayonet, jewelry, and quote, a Nazi type dagger. What? Yeah, it was the most bizarre, just like throwaway comment in this <laughs> Supreme Court ruling. What does this guy have um, in his house? <laughs> I don't, I honestly, it's so strange. I would be fascinated to see what the inside of this person's house looked like. So they did admit uh, his testimony and they said it was significant because it helped to validate Mark Allen's testimony because remember they were saying like oh he's perjured himself we don't know if it's reliable but then the prosecution was able to find this other person who was like well something similar happened to me i just happened to live through it so he was convicted all charges and sentenced to up to 50 years in prison okay on march of 1991 the connecticut state supreme court ruled that the possessions of homeless individuals are protected by the same constitutional rights as those in a house or apartment even though the home might be a public place that anyone could enter. And mm-hmm. this was in part due to a 1967 case of Cats versus the United States that they actually mentioned in the episode of Law and Order. Oh. Do you remember that kind of exchange between Robinette and Stone? I remember there was a moment when they were like, when they got the new attorney for the other guy, and they're like, oh, he spoke yes. at the, and they said some previous case. Yes. So essentially the Cats versus the United States case reformulated the First Amendment first. Fourth Amendment to define it as reasonable expectation of privacy, because previously the court had sort of used only the area to determine if it was constitutionally protected. But the Katz case changed that to being a two-part test where, so first, did the defendant have an expectation of privacy in the search subject matter? And second, is that privacy something society is willing to accept as reasonable? So it's sort of like the, would a lay person assess this to be a private space. Mm -hmm. So one of the New York Times articles, which I read like so many New York Times articles, said that um, over the years, courts have repeatedly been called on to apply the Fourth Amendment to a variety of situations and technologies unimaginable when it was written in 1789, including public telephones and automobiles. In the landmark case of Katz versus the United States, decided in 1967, Justice Potter Stewart wrote that the Fourth Amendment protects people, not places. Mm. So uh, kind of reformulated how the Fourth Amendment should be applied to search and seizure. Okay. So in an appeal, the Sup- state Supreme Court of Connecticut ruled that because the police did not have a warrant to search David Mooney's makeshift shelter, the conviction must be overturned. And uh, it was reported on January 8th of 1992 by the New York Times that uh, David Mooney was to be released from prison. Mm-hmm. Civil rights lawyers hailed it as a victory for the homeless population. And David, who was originally sentenced to a minimum of 27 years, up to 50, uh, served only five by the time he was released on June 22nd, 1992. And he was released as part of a plea agreement, because even though he definitely did kill Theodore Genovese, uh, the state was like, okay, well, if we don't have this evidence to retry him, 
we're going to lose. So they were basically, they basically struck a plea deal to release him saying, if you plead guilty to uh, first degree manslaughter, we will release you on time served. So he pled to first degree manslaughter and was released from prison. Okay. Mm, I don't, I just don't know how I feel about that. I, I don't know how I feel about that either, frankly. On November 5th of 1992, in a heavily wooded area of the East Rock Park in New Haven, a park ranger on patrol found a badly decomposed body, and on November 12th, 1992, the New Haven Register reported that the body had been identified as that of David Mooney. His body had been in the park for several months before being discovered, and he was identified using his dental records. The cause of death was undetermined, but foul play was not suspected as drug paraphernalia was found near his body, so it was suspected that he may have died of an overdose. Okay. His lawyer, um, Emmanuel Margolis, was quoted as saying, It looks like he died within a month of his release. He was ecstatic to be getting out of jail, and perhaps he celebrated too much. In the New Haven Register article, Brantford Police Sergeant William Carroll was quoted as saying, He was the kind of guy who was basically a loner and didn't have many friends. This is the final chapter to this case. Which is just kind of sounds... It's just rude. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was just rude to write. Side note, Mark Allen was convicted of the same charges as David Mooney, and they brought the same charges against both men because physical evidence linked Allen more directly to the crime because, right, he had all the possessions, he had the car... Um, but his confessions had blamed Mooney, so they were both tried with the same uh, charges, and he was sentenced to 40 years for his part in the burglary and murder of Theodore Genovese. Okay. Is this the same Genovese, Genovese that's like the crime family? It's not, okay. but it's the same name. Okay. Uh, well, okay, well, here we go. So my final notes are about Theodore Genovese, because his life story, his details were almost entirely absent from every single article that I could find. One article from the New Haven Register stated that he was described in open testimonies, opening testimonies in court as a very private person. So that explains a little bit about why we don't have a lot of information on him. His sister uh, during the trial described him as well-liked and popular and a very, very private person who did not discuss his social life with his family. His brother said that it was a surprise to him and his family when they learned, quote, after the killing that Theodore was homosexual. Again, <laughs> that's a direct quote. I would not use that phrase. The police found his body so quickly because he was in daily contact with his sister, and when she couldn't get a hold of him the day before his body was discovered, she panicked, she contacted the police, and they went and searched his apartment and found his body. As I said, in the Supreme Court written decision, Thomas Genovese's name is not mentioned even once. The opening paragraph only refers to, quote, the murder and robbery of a homosexual man. And I hate that. Mm -hmm. And as I said, uh, I understand if he was a very private person, why there wasn't a lot about him. This was the early 90s where homosexuality was super taboo uh, to talk about, to, you know, have applied to somebody's life story. And so I, I can see why there's not a lot of information about his life. But like we said on previous podcasts, we always like to try to tell as much of the story of the people who um, are the victims or, or survivors of crimes so that it's not all, it's not just the story of this awful thing that happened. Yeah. But this story is just kind of sad all around. Nobody comes out as a winner. Every, no. Sort of like everybody kind of comes out as a, I don't want to say that they're a loser, but everybody loses in this story. You know, by, by all accounts, David Mooney had a pretty severe substance abuse issue, made some bad choices, it sounds like. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but it's just kind of a, a sad story all around. It is. But I will say, you know, the uh, as I said, the civil rights lawyers who advocate for the homeless community cite this case as a pretty foundational one in advancing the rights of uh, homeless individuals against unlawful search and seizure. So that's good, at least, I think, that that came out of it. I think that's good. I don't know if I'm happy that it applied to this case specifically. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But I think it's a good, a, a positive step. And the frustrating thing about this case, too, is that the police had the time to get a warrant. Like, he was mm. in custody, and they could have easily gotten a warrant prior to going and searching his home. But it was just one of those things where, still today, but especially back then, you know, uh, people who sort of lived on the margins of society were sort of blamed for living on the margins of society. And we didn't, uh, like, we didn't, we don't ever really talk about we didn't back then, and we, I think, are just now starting to talk about a lot of the sort of systems that put people in, like, push people in or out of sort of the center of society. And so, yeah, I don't love that it was, you know, to the benefit of somebody who did commit murder. Right. <laughs> That's not great. But, you know, the case does allow for f- protections for future folks experiencing homelessness against being having their property just randomly searched and investigated by police. Yeah. That is the case of David Mooney, which, by the way, is not listed on the Law & Order wiki page as the case that inspired this episode. But the more and more I researched it, I found, like, multiple instances where they say this was the case that inspired the uh, season two episode of Law & Order Asylum. So other sources referenced it as inspiring this episode. I actually kind of stumbled upon it because I was like, okay, I need to find something about the Fourth Amendment. I need to find something if it references a murder committed by somebody experiencing homelessness that involves the Fourth Amendment. Great. And then I ended up finding the case that literally did inspire the episode. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I had no, I've never heard of this. I had no idea. And what's interesting too is like typically, you know, the fact that Mooney's case rested, like his conviction rested on another individual who was a a victim of robbery on under like similar circumstances to Theodore Genovese's murder mm-hmm. you know like I, it surprises me that the state didn't try to retry his murder case because the fact that there were multiple instances of similar things could like indicate a pattern that maybe he wasn't necessarily safe to have out in the public i don't know mm-hmm. so it's a very strange case. Yeah. But an interesting one. So Definitely. That's the David Mooney case. Good job. Thanks. How do you wanna how do you rate this episode? Okay, so watchability, I gave it a B minus. Okay. I found it entertaining at parts, and I thought uh-huh. that the acting was compelling at least. Yes. Um, but I thought that some of the acting of those who were portraying homeless people were not great. No. Particularly the side characters, like the girl <sighs> at the beginning or the guys that they yes. talk to to find Lemonhead. You know, it's just like, you know, I didn't it was love very, that. It was very much like there was a scene where they went to talk to some homeless individuals to find, to find Lemonhead. Yeah. And everybody was like portraying like happy-go-lucky Childlike. vagrants. You know, it was yeah. like, oh, like it wasn't at all like, oh, how sad that we have a 
percentage of our society who of our society who doesn't have shelter they were like hobo portrayals of homelessness from like the 1950s very like little rascals very little rascals yes so it was it was weird it was not great for the crime uh i guess i would say c plus okay yeah i'm gonna i'll also give you i'll agree with you on a b minus for watchability uh it had moments of good acting mm-hmm. and then, you know, moments of where I was like, what the fuck is this even about? <laughs> I'm going to give it a solid F <laughs> for how it dealt with, like, the topics that it was dealing with of, like, homelessness and then the portrayal of, like, the sex worker who was a d- person in drag, but then they used only the that person's, like, male name. I don't know. Yeah. I hated a lot of different aspects of that character. And I'm pretty sure the actor was a, a straight character, too. It's this cisgendered yes. straight character yeah. when I looked him up. And I do think that, that the actor, even though I think for portraying the character he was supposed to portray, he did a good job acting. It was just, like, pro- a little ham-fisted on behalf, on the, on the part of, like, the directing and maybe... Mm, like story writers yeah they they really didn't assign a mental illness or an actual official evaluation on him we only have a clinical psychologist that works for the the nypd saying that he's psychotic but that's not an actual diagnosis and it's like observational you know so they they really let you assume that lemonhead's character is the way he is because he's homeless not because he has mental illness Right, like that causes the homelessness causes all of these problems as opposed to the fact that he doesn't have access to mental health. Right, care. and this is what homeless people are like because this is what homeless yes. people are like, not because yes. many people who are homeless struggle from mental illness, which maybe got them homeless in the first place. Exactly. So I guess that's that's yeah. pretty challenging for sure. Yeah. Well, kind of a heavy episode, I feel like, which I wasn't anticipating. I the, know. At the beginning, thank God for the style choices. <laughs> Yes. That definitely lightened the mood. (laughs) It sure did. Well, Ripped from the Headlines is an indie podcast, and if you enjoy listening to us and think other folks might too, the very best thing you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen to our episodes, because that helps other people find us. Exactly. And you can help other people find us by telling a friend, telling a colleague who you might think be interested in what we do. Um, Tell them about our show, let them know about us, and word of mouth is really the hugest way we get around. And we really love connecting with our listeners, so feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com, and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. We love hearing from you. And we mentioned it earlier in the episode, but we have a lot of things coming out, so if you'd like to learn more about us and find information about our show, newsletters, we got merch coming up, our forthcoming Patreon, check out our website. It's rippedheadlinespod.com. We also love collaborating with other podcasters, so if you're a fellow podcaster, feel free to contact us, or if you would like to see us collab with another podcast, put us in touch with them. Thank you so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye!